This episode is brought to you by Greg Morris Cards, one of the largest sports card sellers on the planet. Greg sells over 80,000 vintage and modern cards every month, including basketball, football, baseball, hockey, all sports really, and even some non-sports cards too. On top of that, every raw card receives the same hand grading that collectors have put their trust in for over 15 years. What are you waiting for? Head on over to gregmorriscards.com auctions and check it out for yourself. What's up, everyone? This is episode 207 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. All right, well, a lot has happened over the course of the past week. Of course, last week's episode was published the night before the trade deadline. And when I went to bed that night, Kevin Durant was a Brooklyn Net. By the time I woke up, he was a Phoenix Sun. And by the way, Leaf had just signed Kevin Durant to a new deal, and they're already offering KD Suns autos on their website, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, I thought that was good news for the card world. Now, granted, I think the design's ugly, but it's nice to see another company jump on that real quick and hopefully put a little pressure on Panini in the process. As you guys know, there's not a lot of real competition to force them to do better right now. Uh, but back to the deadline. Overall, though, it was a very enjoyable trade deadline. I mean, you guys know already know what all happened. My team didn't necessarily land the pieces that I thought they might, so guess what? The tank is back. I'm back to rooting for losses. The team has lost, like, I don't know, something like 18 out of 20. So um, I guess that's good for the direction that they're headed. They did still make some trades, though, uh, and it's likely that your team might have made some as well. So one of the questions that I got in today's mailbag deals with collecting traded players. And I know I went over that a little bit last year, but it's good to touch on that again from time to time. So you'll want to make sure to stay tuned for that. And of course, a number of other questions will be part of today's mailbag segment. Uh, Before I get there, though, I want to do a quick mail segment. I'm talking about physical mail here. And I feel like I haven't had one in a while, at least not a human one. And today I've got an unlikely trio of packages that I want to talk about. And I guess one of them won't surprise you a whole lot. And that's this first one here. I got a 2022-23 Panini Instant card of Tyrese Halliburton. And those of you that are familiar with Instant know that each card in the program is typically tied to a specific moment throughout the course of the season. So this Halliburton is from when he scored a career-high 43 points in Miami, which, you know, number one, that's significant because it's his career-high, but it's especially important to me because I was at that game, and I talked about it here on the show, so you guys might remember that. I would have bought one of these regardless of the print run, but not very many people picked this one up. I think the total print run was 84, so that will fit nicely in my binder that features games I attended. The second package that I got this week depicts another such game, although this card is way too thick to put in that binder. I don't put thick cards in there, just normal size cardstock go in my binders. I know, you know, different people do different things. This one will not go in there, though. 
That is because it is a 130-point acetate card. It's a 2019-2020 Immaculate Moments autograph of Darren Williams from a Nets-Bobcats game where Darren scored 57 points. It's the most points I've ever seen a player score in person. And actually, I didn't even realize it until later in the game. I want to say he scored something like 35 in the first half, and I'm just going off memory there. That might not even be right. Uh, But it was all in the flow of the game, so I didn't think much of it. And a little later on, I turned to my friend and I said something to the effect of, wow, I think D-Will's got a lot of points. And um, so that was all the way back in 2012. I attended that game in Charlotte. This card, though, is from a 2019 product, which probably means it came out closer to 2021 at at the way things were going then. But um, I didn't even know that this card existed until I saw Steven, NJ Nets collector, post it sometime last year. But once he did post it, I remembered that I had been to the game and I had to have it. And I know I've lost a couple copies since then. I've had it in my save searches it came around again, and, and I probably set a new comp, I don't know, or a new high comp. I'm not sure if I did or not, but I wanted to get one, and I wanted to be done with it. Okay, the last card I want to talk about today is not from a game I attended, but it's one that I've mentioned here on the show before. It's one I've been trying to track down for at least a couple years now. It is a 2006-2007 Topps Finest, Finest Moments Relic Auto of Adam Morrison, Number to 50. Yes, that's right. I've been chasing this Adam Morrison card. And what I like so much about this card is that the relic is a piece of the suit that Adam wore at the 2006 draft. And at this time, Tops and Upper Deck, they would sign exclusive athletes. You know, in hindsight, Upper Deck always chose a little bit better. But uh, so anyway, Tops had signed Adam in 2006 as one of their spokesmen. And as part of that agreement, they asked him if they could cut up his draft suit and put that into cards. And we've seen draft signatures, we've seen draft hats, we've seen those for a long time, right? But never uh, the draft suit. So I thought that was pretty cool. And I have the non-auto version. Those are a lot more common. You can still get those for under 10 bucks. And it's been my favorite oddball relic and, and NBA draft relic. But the next step up was the autographed version. And believe it or not, they don't show up often. I mean, I mentioned there's 50 copies of them, but even for a card number to 50, you just don't see it all that much. You know, it, it might just be that people don't want to list them or, or you know, maybe people legitimately like them. I don't know. I like this one a lot. It finally showed up on eBay and the rest is history. I know I posted it on Reddit already, but I'll try to get it up on my social media channels as well so you can see for yourself. All right, before I move into today's main segment, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support this show. As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast. One of my goals is to always keep the show itself free. As a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. If you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Click whatever store you need to go to, shop as planned, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hey everybody, Boston Steve here, the Northeast Correspondent, checking in from the city of a winning basketball team, and you are listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Okay, so as you can see by the title, this is the 14th installment of the Listener Mailbag, and as always, you guys ask some excellent questions, so I'm going to go ahead and just jump right in. The first one here comes from Late 90s B-Ball, who asks, 
free Taco Bell for life, or one free hobby box of every basketball release for the next 10 years. And I know this was presented as an either or, but I would hate to have to pick between Taco Bell and cards. Uh, But I've got an answer that I think still allows me to enjoy the best of both worlds. And that is going with one of every hobby box for the next 10 years. And the reason being, it's simply a logistics issue. Because even though I could ring up an unlimited amount of items at Taco Bell, uh, my body can only take so much. And, you know, those around me can only take so much, to, to be realistic here. On the flip side, though, if I got a copy of every hobby box for the next 10 years, I could sell the ones I don't want, which right now would be a lot of them. And then that alone would fund the majority of my Taco Bell runs. And I'm assuming at some point there's going to be a rookie class that allows for people to get sucked into another product like Eminence, which I believe was nearly $6,000 out the gate back in December of 2015 uh, when it first came out. I know there's been another version since, but that's the equivalent of like 3,000 beefy melts, which would last me uh, a really, really long time right now. Okay, I had a couple questions about card shows. And the first one came from Carter, aka MC Basketball PC, who asked, can you share about your rhythm for the frequency or locations of your card show attendance, i.e. how do you plan where and when you go throughout the year? Well, I don't make too strict of a schedule ahead of time, um, but my goal for right now is to travel to one big show every summer, preferably the national if the location makes sense. And you might remember that last year it didn't, at least not for me. I'm not saying for anyone else, but for me it didn't make sense. So I made stops in Indy and Dallas instead, which I really enjoyed. As for the rest of the year, I mostly stay in Florida because the the show scene here is really saturated right now. So I pick and choose which ones I think will be worth my time. For example, there's a 50 table show uh, coming up here soon at Raymond James Stadium where the Bucks play, and it's like five hours on a Sunday. Um, For me personally, I don't think that's worth my time. And I'll I'll probably see the same dealers there that I see at other local shows, so for that one, I'm going to pass. That's not to say that that's a bad show. It might be the best 50-table show that's ever been around, but, um, you know, I'm trying to pick and choose the ones that I think are more of a sure thing. And you really have to be careful with shows right now because a lot of promoters made a lot of money off of these things when when everything was booming. And now that things have died down a little bit, the number of shows seems like really hasn't. And you have a lot of shows that tend to overpromise and underdeliver. And I talked about another one of those where I, I felt like that recently. I went to one here in Florida that was like that. Uh, I mentioned it on my YouTube channel. You know, maybe they're not doing this on purpose, but it is what it is. So I'd rather just stick to the shows I know or the the shows that already have a solid reputation. For the big ones, you know, that would be the National, that would be Dallas, that would be the big regional shows that I talked about with Zach on a previous episode. And then the local shows that I already know about, I try to attend two of those every month. So every other week I'm trying to go to a show. Okay, the second card show question comes from NYC Hoops Collector. He asked, how often do you set up at shows as a dealer? Would you say you do it more for the experience or more to fund your collecting? Um, And then he said, I know you don't really discuss pricing in the market on your show, but how much prep do you do on those two subjects before setting up at a show? That's a real good question there. So I don't think I've set up at a show for several months now. 
Um, and when I do, it, it's you, you know usually a really small local one day thing. I can't do the two day shows. I'm not going to take a day off work to go work, right? Because card shows, even though I do enjoy them um, to an extent, they are work. You are lugging all this stuff around. You're moving it in and out. You're dealing with people. You're having interactions, right? So there's a part of it that is work. But when I used to set up more frequently, I was buying lots on a pretty regular basis. And that was a way for me to move a lot of the stuff uh, for stuff that I'd like more. But times were different then. You know, you could buy a binder full of base rookies and everyone was going gaga over them. I mean, I'm talking Vince Carter, Topps rookies, T-Max rookies rookies and so on um, they all sold for like ten dollars a pop well those things have moved back to the dollar boxes so it doesn't make sense to buy as many of the lots and binders and all that stuff and as a result inventory can kind of get stale so I you know I don't want to take the same stuff to a show again and again and again so I haven't been setting up as much because it really just doesn't make sense for me right now my new strategy is to wait a few months and see how much stuff is built up. If I feel like I have enough to set up and the show situation is ideal, meaning it's a one day, it's one that I can do easily, or I have someone that can set up with me, right, you know, I'll do that, fine. Um, if not, I just keep letting that stuff pile up. Now, there, the major downside to that, though, is I try to make sure every item's priced. And when you set up month to month, you don't have to make a lot of changes. Maybe you check the items in your showcase and you leave it at that, right? Uh, but I've got a lot of stacks and boxes of low-end stuff. And when you set up every three or four months, you essentially have to go through everything and reprice stuff. And, uh, you know, that'll take an entire evening. And then people want to beat you up on a comp that happened like two hours after you finished pricing everything. So that's kind of obnoxious. But if you're going to set up, you just have to live with it. That's part of it. And I still feel like pricing your cards leads to more impulse buys, so I think it's a better strategy. It also eliminates a lot of other back and forth from people uh, that, you know, realistically have no intentions of buying. Okay, the card guru wrote, uh, he said an easy one here, inserts, parallels, or game-used autos, and why? And I, I think he asked that knowing what my answer would be because that, you know, for me, you guys know I'm a relic guy, so I have to go with game used in autos. Now, does that mean I'm happy with the current state of relics? If you've heard the show a couple weeks ago, you know that I'm not. But when done right, I definitely prefer relics in autos. It's one of the few, um, in a lot of cases, affordable ways that fans like us can connect with players in the history of the game. Okay, next up um, is probably my favorite question from this week. It's from Dennis Rodman Collection. And he asked, in your early collecting journey, we know you had a phase of collecting baseball. What were you going after? Patches, autos, or inserts? Uh, and what was your top three? Okay, so my little baseball phase, which was probably, I would say, three years, although you know I've dabbled in baseball in other years as well, this phase was an odd one because it was all about utility. I started going to minor league games here in Florida, uh, and then that turned into spring training, and it snowballed from there. And I did baseball autographing in person on and off from 2006 to, you know, maybe even 2019. Um, and that's not to say I did it every year there because I, I didn't even live in Florida that whole time. But um, that whole process even though it's enjoyable, it's very time consuming. There's a lot of dead time, a lot of standing around, a lot of getting sunburned. Um, 
And then it got really difficult towards the end of that run with players not wanting to sign. And then the pandemic more or less sealed the deal for me. I was already kind of getting tired of doing that. And then the pandemic just killed it because people just didn't want to sign. So, um, but during that period though, of 2006 to 2009, especially I bought packs and boxes primarily for the base card. So it was kind of the other way around. So, you know, I wanted to get those base cards signed and then anything else that I got was kind of a bonus. And, um, I wasn't going to card shows then. And, and in order to purchase cards online, you, you really had to know pretty far in advance what players you'd need. So buying packs and boxes allowed me to have base cards on hand for players and coaches at all levels. Um, you know, eventually I realized it was a lot more efficient to just buy complete sets, but I think there was a part of me that liked opening those boxes as well. Um, although it was a lot of blasters, I should have been buying more hobby boxes. Um, although I, I, I did end up buying, um, probably a couple boxes of Alan Ginter every year for a while. I've, I've stopped that recently, but I used to buy that a lot. And over the years, I, I pulled a few decent cards. I mentioned Ginter there. I pulled some rip cards, some double rip cards, um, in Bowman Chrome, I, I pulled a uh, super fractor of a pitching prospect. In Topps Heritage, I pulled an Alex Gordon auto and he was the next big thing. But to answer your original question, my top three would probably be base cards that I eventually got signed. I mentioned Alan and Ginter there. Um, I loved getting those signs. I got Kate Upton in person a couple times and she was not an easy autograph. Uh, neither was her now husband, Justin Verlander. I got him. I spent a lot of long afternoons waiting for Miguel Cabrera at different parks. And I've got a nice Upper Deck Masterpieces card signed by him. Um, my favorite experience was probably running into Reggie Jackson. I'm not talking about the basketball player here. This is the baseball player. I think he's my favorite baseball player that um, I wasn't around to see play on TV or play in person. And, um, you know, I just love watching clips about him. I love reading about him. And I, I've heard some horror stories about him when it comes to autographing. Um, but all I can tell you is my loan experience with him was, was great. I saw him at a Tampa Yankees game. He signed an NX card for me, took a nice picture with me. Um, so that was a lot of fun. And um, I, I've t I guess I've talked a lot about baseball here for now. So that's probably enough for that. You've got my mind working, though. I might have to make a couple YouTube videos showing some of that stuff off uh, if that's something you might be interested in. I know you, I have some baseball fans out there. All right, Suns Win Cards ask, do you um, or do I have plans to curate displays of my cards, such as in a card room, a display case, or an office? You know, I wish I could display cards, but between the sunlight and the cats, right, I have two cats, uh, I don't know if that's ever going to happen. And, and by the way, the cats are not allowed in the card room, but they are evolving every day. They can open most of our cabinets now. And like they know, you know, I have one, I think he knows how to open the patio door. He's just not strong enough to do it. I've seen him try to flip the lock up though. It's kind of scary. So I'm just waiting for the day where these cats can turn a traditional doorknob. But um, even though I'm not going to display my cards permanently, I am trying to optimize some of my collection so I can flip through it easier. For the longest time, I had everything in boxes. Now I'm currently working on moving more of the thinner cards to binders. Got my refractor binders, got my gold binder. Uh, I've showed those off on my YouTube channel. You might have also seen a recent binder I made of serial numbered Pacers cards. 
um, primarily from the 2000s. Now, I haven't worked up the courage to put stuff like PMGs and Star Rubies in there yet, uh, but maybe someday. I figure that is coming. All right, Alex Connell Collection asks, if you could pick one or two cards from the glorious 2003 to 2008 era, which one would you pick for there to be a Benedict Matherin card of? Little fantasy booking here. Uh, the first one would probably be a Topps Big Game nameplate seen as it would be a game-worn jersey piece, and it would show a picture of the source material on the back of the card. I know uh, Big Game wasn't the best nameplate set when it came to aesthetics, but overall, I think Tops did a lot of good things with that set. The other one would probably be a 2004-2005 Ultimate Premium Patch. Um, there's just so much to choose from when it comes to that era, So, but I'm a patch guy, right? So I'm going to go with those two. Okay, Nebrolian PC asks, which modern set or product does not appeal to you and why? Well, I'm going to sound like a bit of a negative Nancy here, but my gut reactions to say all of them, because they're released so late now, it, it really kills a lot of the enjoyment for me. But, you know, that's probably not true, because I still like pouring over the checklist and seeing what Pacers made the set or what retired players made the, you know, the flawless patch sets. Um, my running gag for a while has been that Hoop sucks, but that was more of a reaction to people trying to invest in it. The main product itself, I don't mind. Um, I've always thought the winner version was stupid, though. I didn't mind the sweaters when they were actually player-worn, but now they aren't worn and the players aren't even pictured with them, yet they continue to make them. And combine that with the fact that every action shot for the, the winner set has snow in it, I think I'm going to go with Hoop's winner. It does not appeal to me at all. It never has. It never will. All right. Wolves Collector MBA asks, should eBay require sellers to give the standard envelope shipping option for cards under $10? Now, I have to say I've really enjoyed the standard envelope program, even with the goofy tracking. Um, if you've never used standard envelope before and you see, you know, hey, my card shows it's delivered, but it's nowhere to be seen. Don't freak out because a lot of times, you know, that, that happens, right? It's something weird about the program. I've mentioned it before, but the only thing that really bothers me with this program is when people use it to ship relics because they seem to always get creased. So as far as requiring sellers to ship that way, though, that's tricky. As of right now, I don't think it's a good idea, which is why sellers might be wise to box all that smaller stuff up and send it to ComC instead. Speaking of ComC, allow me to interrupt for a moment here to remind you that this show is brought to you in part by ComC.com, your home for buying, selling, and flipping all the hottest trading cards. Their consignment marketplace is home to over 29 million trading cards from baseball superstars like Aaron Judge to Marvel favorites like Spider-Man. ComC has something for every type of collector. Visit ComC.com today to build your collection with your favorite cards. Okay, Havlicek Stole the Cards Ask, any plans in the future of putting full guest interviews on YouTube? Would be great to put faces to the IG names of collectors and see them share their top three cards on video when they share them. Well, um, that's a good question. As of right now, though, no, because whenever I invite someone on the show, I typically let them know that I'm only using the audio and not the video. And then sometimes when guests discuss their three favorite cards, they're not even in front of them. Now, I have, however, 
Uh, well, I've done it with one so far. I, I've started uploading some of the audio to my YouTube channel with images of the cards and some visuals to go along with it. So um, that's something I plan to do more of in the future. It might be worth checking out. And then you probably noticed when it comes to Wax Museum content in general, you're not going to see me dancing around on camera. You're not going to see my face on a thumbnail looking like I just got the surprise of my life. I know that works well for some people, but that is not really my style. I, I want to focus more so on the cards. I'll leave all that other stuff to the hobby thespians. Okay, Vintage Pacers asks, can you speculate on why there are so few cards acknowledging the Pacers-Knicks rivalry of the 90s? He said there is one card ever made that features Reggie Miller versus John Starks, and that seems like a crime to me. Yeah, you know, there's really not much out there for Pacers and Knicks. There's the one insert that you talked about. Um, and then later on in 2003, Upper Deck made a dual auto of Reggie Miller and Spike Lee. Um, I, You know, there might be a few other cards here and there that are kind of subtle. I know Impeccable had an auto, uh, a Reggie Miller autograph that commemorated his eight points in nine seconds. But you wouldn't know it by the picture, though. You really have to read the fine print. Now... As someone who lived in Indiana during that time, it's really hard for me to get a good grasp on how big of a rivalry it was. Um, it felt big to me for a number of reasons. I mean, I was pretty young. It was my team. You know, a lot of it took place in New York and at Madison Square Garden, which people considered to be the mecca of basketball. And then we even got a really good 30 for 30 documentary on it called Winning Time. So, you know, it was a big deal to me. Um, and for all those reasons, I feel like it was a big deal to NBA fans in general. But if I had to speculate, which is what you asked me to do, I would guess we didn't get very many cards, um, you know, surrounding these events because much of that era focused on Michael Jordan. Feels like a lot of sets were kind of created around him. And, and, you know, rightfully so. He was the most marketable player in the league. Uh, and in hindsight, the most marketable player of all time. Now, like I said, that's just speculation, though. There, there's probably no way that we can know for sure. Okay, um, adding on to that, the Bouvier asks, are true NBA rivalries still alive or dead? With so many key players changing teams, do those bitter rivalries still exist? Um, I will say, I think traditional NBA rivalries are dead. It doesn't mean they aren't possible. Um, but like you mentioned, guys are changing teams so much and at the moment, I don't think we even have one real good rivalry. I mean, I know, you know, if the Celtics and Lakers somehow made it to the finals, the history of those franchises would make that a rivalry. But there's nothing about those teams right now that uh, seem to make them a rivalry. So um, one thing that I think we might see, though, with the players changing teams so much is maybe those will shift more so to individual player rivalries. But even those, in my opinion, aren't likely to stick around for long. Okay, speaking of changing teams, my kids hits, and it's probably not how you say that. I think it's said another way. Um, he asked, with the trade deadline this week, how do player trades impact you as a team collector? Are you reluctant to buy players during a rebuild because they could be traded? And then he said he's a Spurs collector and this is new to him. I would say it all comes down to the purpose of your collection. For example, I like collecting pacers from all different eras and narrating the history of the franchise, so as long as they're pictured in a pacers uniform, I'm going to keep some of their cards regardless. Now, I might thin some stuff out here and there, 
That's kind of what I did with Brogdon this past summer. You know, I had some of his Bucks rookies. I realized, hey, this isn't Pacer stuff. I don't need it. But I'm not going to completely get rid of a Pacers player. I kept all my really nice Pacers Brogdon stuff, by the way. Uh, that stuff I'm hanging on to. Okay. Indy Lions 23 asks, who are your 10 favorite Pacers of all time? And 10 seems like a lot here, but I'll give it a go. And keep in mind, this is not the 10 best Pacers necessarily, just my 10 favorites. So uh, number one, it's got to be Reggie Miller, the Pacers GOAT. Number two is going to be my main PC guy, which was Ron Artest. Three, I've got Jeff Foster. I've, I've said before, I really like how he connected different eras of my favorite team. Number four is Rick Smits. Really enjoyed watching him when I was younger. Number five, I know he never played for the Pacers, but I'm going to pick Slick Leonard just because he was such a big deal with the Pacers. Number six is Danny Granger. Number seven is um, a rotating cast of characters. It's kind of depending on who's the flavor of the moment. So at one point it would have been Paul George. He's off the list now. Uh, Same goes for Victor Oladipo. He's not going to be anywhere close to this list. I'm going to put Halliburton there in good faith, but if he sticks around for a while, which it seems like he will, he's going to climb this list really fast. Um, So hopefully that happens. Number eight, I know I mentioned Slick Leonard earlier, but um, he was not a player, but I want to put some of the ABA players on there as well, which is tricky because there's not a ton of footage out there. I know Roger Brown was probably one of the most skilled pacers of all time, but I think I'm going to choose George McGinnis instead. Um, He had some Indiana Hoosiers ties as well, and and just overall is very important to the state. And then for 9 and 10, I'm going to do some more modern players. Number 9, I'll say Miles Turner. And then number 10, Lance Stevenson. Okay, Rob, a.k.a. Sports Card Therapist, asks, Do you think the 1948 George Mikan rookie card is overrated, underrated, or properly rated in the eyes of the hobby overall. And for context here, I think I should mention that Rob just acquired one of these, and it's a great-looking copy too. So, I, you know, I, he's curious about this card. Like I said, he just acquired one. Um, now, I have not acquired one. A Mike and Rookie's been on my want list for a long time, Um, but I'm not pursuing it too aggressively because I I feel like I'm pretty much priced out of it for the time being. So in that sense, I think it's properly rated because if you want one, you've really got to pony up. There have been some times though, where I felt like the card was definitely underrated. I remember listening to a, a basketball podcast and this was a couple years ago where they were ranking iconic basketball cards. And one of the hosts didn't even know who George Mikan was. And obviously that kind of killed their list and killed that episode for me. Um, But that host, though, he's not the only one. There are still a lot of people in the hobby that don't understand or don't appreciate Mikan's impact on the sport. But I don't know if their ignorance should necessarily factor into a card's overall status. So to answer your question here, I think the card itself is properly rated. Mikan, on the other hand, is underrated. Okay. Zach's Vintage Cards says, question for Mrs. Wax Museum. Has anything related to Kyle's collecting impressed you? So the collection that impressed me the most was like, it was a basketball set and it was either the 60s or 70s. I don't know if it was top. 
officer. But that sounds like baseball. Did they do basketball with tops? They did. Okay, so it was a tops basketball set that you had been working on for years that you had finally completed. Anything uh, significant about that set? It took a hundred years, and it, it did take a long time. Um, anything significant? Right. No, uh, I don't know. Oh, okay. Like me getting the autographs on all the cards. Too? I mean, yeah, the hustle. Oh, okay. I appreciated the hustle with it. Okay, and you could probably hear a spoon clanking against the pan there because I, I literally, as I was piecing all this together, I ambushed her with that question while she was making dinner. So I didn't want to give her a chance to think it through ahead of time. I wanted to see if there was genuinely anything that she was impressed with, and uh, I'm not sure. After that answer, I'm not sure. Okay, uh, Owen, a.k.a. Cardstocks, wrote, This is a bit of old news, but do you think Fanatics already has control over Panini? What do you think 2023 looks like for both of those corporations? Well, I will say it doesn't feel like there's been any sort of takeover yet, um, but I don't have any definitive information either way. So it's, you know, speculating is dangerous. I don't always like doing that. I know a lot of mailbags, though I, I end up having to speculate. So I want to be very clear when I'm doing that and when I'm not. In this case, I am. I know Michael Rubin of Fanatics did an interview a week or two ago that's been making the rounds on social media you could probably speculate a few things just based off of that. I know several people have. Um, in general, though, I, I think they probably made a big mistake investing all that money into an industry when it was in the middle of a big boom. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And while they might pay for it in the long run, I think the real victims are going to be us, the consumers. And, um, you know, I feel like it can't get much worse than what we see with Panini now, but I really have no clue what it's going to be like in the future. Okay, next question. Gun it 100. I think I said that right. Um, ask, as a collector, do you ever feel bad about collecting cards with a significantly limited print run? I'm sure we all know of cards that are hoarded away in people's PCs that we would like a chance to own at least for a little while. Um, yeah, I, so I am, I have hoarded a few cards. Um, there are a few particular patch sets where I've, I would say I've hoarded copies of. Um, you know, if a lot of them have come up for sale in the open, I don't feel too bad about it because I feel like people had uh, an equal opportunity to get the card. I will say I'm a lot less likely to move some of these pieces than I would have been in the past because there have been times where I've helped people out. You know, they told me all about these projects they're doing and then they end up getting rid of those cards, and I don't even get first dibs at getting them back. And even in one particular instance, I helped someone land a really nice Lance Stevenson patch for super cheap, um, and then that person decided they were done collecting him, and he came back to me and tried to sell it to me for more than he bought it for. Keep in mind, I, I could have just bought it in the first place instead of helping him out. So, uh, you know, granted, he did forget that I was the one that helped him get that, but uh, that was enough for me to stop doing that. Um, now, with that being said, if you're stuck on the other side of a situation like this, I would suggest trying to make a trade. Get creative and find something that's really rare that the hoarder likes even better because chances are if they're hoarding something, they hoard a lot of stuff. Um, so you never know. If you're creative about it, if you you know accumulate some other stuff they like, you might be able to price something away from them in the process. Okay, last question. 
came from the Green Stiller. He said, if you could only collect one set, including bass, inserts, and parallels from each decade, what would it be? Well, if I'm bound to one specific set for an entire era, I want something that gives me a decent amount of stuff to chase, if possible. As you'll see from the earlier eras, that's not always the case. So I'm only going to do major sets here. I'm not going to do regional food releases or anything like that. So I'm sticking to mainstream stuff. Um, the 40s and 50s then are easy because there was 48 Bowman and 57 Tops. For the 60s, not a lot to choose from either. It's either going to be 61 Fleer or 69 Tops. I'm not a big fan of oversized cards, so I'll choose that 61 set. A lot of big rookies in that 61 set as well. For the 70s, tons of choices here. I'm going to go with 71 Tops because that was the first set to include ABA cards, and I really like that design. The 80s is a bit of a toss-up. I don't collect much from that era. And up until 86 Fleer, it was a couple top sets and then the star sets, but none of them seem super difficult. I know 86 Fleer seems like a cop-out answer, but it's really the best I've got. Now, the 90s, though, are when things start to get interesting. This is more or less when the chase element extended beyond your normal base and sticker sets. So I would probably have to go with a set like 97-98 Flair Showcase because of all the different rows and the legacies that there are to chase. I think that would be a good long-term project. And then for the 2000s, which is my favorite era, you know, I talked all about how I love collecting patch sets. Well, it wouldn't be a patch set, though, for this. I would go with 2004-2005 Tops Finest for similar reasons that I chose Showcase um, because the parallels, there's all these different parallels that you can chase. There's a nice mix of retired players and legends in there too, which I really like. Um, the parallels would also drive my decision for the 2010s, where I think I would choose 2013 Prism. because It's one of my favorite Prism designs, and uh, you know some of the parallels were split between Walmart and Target, so that was pretty fun. Um, the other set I would consider was also split between retailers. That was 2018-2019 status. And then the 2020s might be as difficult as the 80s because uh, there's just so much junk now. It's hard to find something to get real excited about in the moment. Uh, you know, like I said earlier, part of the problem is everything is late. I think that's really soured me on a lot of products. Um, you know, I might look back at some of these releases in 5 to 10 years and appreciate them a lot more. I know I did that with the 2010s. But I guess I'd have to go with 2020 and 2021 Flawless, primarily because I like jumbo patches. But um, it has game-worn stuff for the rookies as well, which I think is important. Um, overall, hey, really good question there. I think that might be a fun one for people to post on social media because I figure everyone's response would be drastically different. All right, well, there you have it. Another good batch of questions as usual. Uh, so thanks to you guys for that. Maybe there was something I talked about today that resonated with you. Feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under at Wax Museum Podcast or Twitter under the handle at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site, which is www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. 
In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.